0: You've already seen throughout our service really the gospel, the sin that our need, the need that our sin arises and the solution in Christ. But I, I still want to ask you this question, because it's a question that gets talked about a lot. Are you a good person? Or, or if you want to kind of abstract it a little bit, are people basically good? Now, how you answer that question all comes down to to one thing, really. What standard are you using to judge goodness, right? Well, 30 years ago, People Magazine attempted to get a better understanding of how people think about this question. People Magazine, this great bastion of Christian orthodoxy, okay? (laughs) And they decided to survey their readers in an attempt to find out how much the average person sinned and how people ranked their sins from this is a really big deal to this is not that big of a deal. Okay, so they put it together in this thing they called the syndex. Pretty, pretty brilliant. Okay, what were the results? Okay, so people ranked the worst sins, the worst sins you could commit, murder, rape, incest, child abuse, treason. Okay, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, they also ranked surprisingly high We're parking in a handicapped spot. and w- it's, That's up there. And cutting in line. Uh, pretty bad. Um, so parking in a handicapped spot and cutting in line ranked higher as how big of a deal it is than premarital sex and divorce. Smoking, swearing, uh, things like this were actually pretty low. Okay. But here's the surprising part, really. The, the most surprising part, I would say. Overall... Readers answered a question, and after they kind of tallied up all the results, they said that people thought that they commit about four and a half sins per month. Okay? That is something to laugh about. That, that's about one sin a week. So the, again, the question is, what, based on what standard, what standard are we using to define sin? Uh, If sin isn't very bad or very common, then here's the problem. The gospel isn't very necessary or very appealing, right? So what we're going to see this morning in our text is that if these people answering the survey had understood the law of God, they would have answered this question very differently. They would have answered similarly to uh, an old theologian named G.K. Chesterton once was asked, what is the greatest problem with the world? And he answered, I am. That's a man who understands what sin is, okay? So before we dive into this text, though, let me kind of remind you where we are here in Galatians. It's been a while since we've been here. So Paul and his church planting team had planted multiple churches in the region of Galatia, the region in modern-day Turkey. He'd preached the gospel of Christ, and both Jews and Gentiles had believed, had believed in Jesus Christ. They'd put their faith in Christ. They were baptized into the church. And so now you've got this group These churches of people in Galatia, that are filled with Jews, Christian Jews, Jesus-believing Jews, and Jesus-believing Gentiles. And now they have to figure out how to get along, which was a big problem back in that day. See, there were a lot of practices according to the law of God and other traditions that Jews used to mark themselves off from Gentiles. The three biggest of these are are pretty obvious, Sabbath keeping, so what they would do on the Sabbath on Saturdays, food laws, how they would eat, what they would eat, what they wouldn't eat, who they would eat with, who they wouldn't eat with, and circumcision. Now, the Jews of Galatia, though they believed in Christ, they continued living according to these things because that's just how they'd always lived, and they were taught in Scripture, so what's the big deal? But here's the problem. The Gentile Christians who are new believers in Christ, just as the Jews are new believers in Christ, they've never been taught to live according to the law. They've never been taught that they needed to be circumcised. They've never been taught Sabbath laws. They've never been taught that you can't eat pork and this is who you can not eat, but this is who you can. And so these churches had a huge problem in fellowship between these two groups. And if the body of Christ is to be united, they had to figure out how to do this together. Now, when Paul was with them, planting and teaching them, He kind of ironed all this out, and they had it all solved. But here's the problem. He had left the churches to go on planting more churches, and as soon as he had left, false teachers had come into these churches, Jews, and they had ruined the unity of the churches by teaching a false gospel, Paul says, a distorted gospel, uh, another gospel, that in order to truly be Jesus' followers, these Gentiles... Had to also now obey the law, which meant they had to be circumcised, they had to keep Sabbath laws, they had to follow all the dietary restrictions, and these false teachers were telling these Gentiles and any other Jews who were uh, disagreeing with them that if you don't do this, you are not in Christ. Your faith is not in Christ. A person to be saved, to be justified, to be declared righteous before God must have faith in Christ. And also obey the law of Moses, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Now, here's the problem. If the Galatian churches, this is what Paul says in Galatians 1, if the Galatian churches buy into this false teaching, this false gospel, he says, you have fallen from grace, you've abandoned Christ himself, you are severed from Christ. This is how serious the issue is in Galatians. So, what does Paul do? He hears about this and filled by the Holy Spirit, he writes a letter to the Galatian churches, which is what we have been studying. And seeing how Paul argues against and dismantles this false gospel, we have been learning and glorying in the true gospel of grace, and we're going to continue to do that this morning. But again, Galatians is a sustained argument throughout. So here's what he's been doing so far. Now, Galatians, this is why it's kind of fun that we, we go back and forth between sermon series, because Galatians is, is the opposite of Genesis. Genesis is a story, it's a narrative, and so we follow the story of people. Galatians is an argument, it's a theological, exegetical, and logical case for the gospel of Christ. Two kind of genres that are very important for understanding, although very different. So, Paul's kind of main thesis of Galatians is found in chapter 2, verse 15. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, so not by obedience to the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not works of the law. No one will be justified by keeping the law. So salvation is by grace and not by obedience to the law. In fact, again, Paul argues that anyone who relies on their obedience to the law, even a little bit, for salvation, they think that that's part of what's going to earn them eternal life, he says you've been severed from Christ. Why? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians it's because the law demands perfection. And surprise, none of us are able to do that. And so Paul's conclusion, again, demonstrated from the Old Testament, is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works of the law. Not by any works of the law. It has always been and always will be by grace through faith. God promised salvation to Abraham before he gave the law on Sinai, and he fulfilled it in Jesus Christ. Therefore, salvation is not by the law. That kind of gets us up to where we are here, and I hope you kind of feel the tension that arises when Paul's saying this, because that's the tension he's going to address in our text this morning. This tension that's kind of underneath the surface is, okay, Paul, and you can hear the person from from Galatia kind of thinking this, if all that is true, if what you're saying is true, if God promised salvation to Abraham, if salvation has always been through faith, then... Why did God come to Moses 430 years after this promise to Abraham and give him a bunch of these laws that he had to give to Israel? How how does that work together? Why did God give the law if everything's by faith and it's all about faith and it's not about the law? That's the question that Paul starts to answer in our text this morning. And Paul, being a brilliant communicator, he anticipates these questions, he raises them himself, and then he answers them. Why did God give Israel the law? What was its function? What was the purpose of the law in redemptive history? Look at verse 19, and Paul will begin to answer this question. And his first answer to this question is this. The law was given by God to expose and to increase sins. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. The law was added, Paul says, it was was given by God because of transgressions. Now, that is a really ambiguous phrase. So, this, this can mean one of two things. It either means that God gave the law because of the transgressions of the people in order to help them and restrain their sin... Okay, you could read it that way, you can see that. Or it means the law was added to expose and increase their sins. Now, on first glance it kind of just feels like the first one is true. Well, yeah, the law, I mean laws that they restrain people's sins, right? They put consequences so you might not do something that you were going to do because you don't want to suffer the consequence. That makes sense. But that is not the answer in the context of this text. The law was not given to restrain sin. God gave the law, and I'll show you this from some other texts, God gave the law to show the people their sin, to expose it, and to expose their deep need for a Savior from the condemnation that that law leveled on them. So, when Paul says, because of transgressions, he doesn't mean people had sinned, and so God gave them the law to help them and restrain their sin, it's exactly the opposite. God gave the law to provoke, to expose, to arouse, even increase their sins, and by doing this, to prepare the way for Christ to come. Now, that's, that sounds a little startling. I mean, the exposing part, we're like, okay, expose the sin, but to increase or to even arouse people's sins? That sounds, that sounds wild, but this, this, is, this is the teaching of the New Testament. And I want to show you this from a couple different places. So first, there's just an argument from the context of what Paul is doing here in Galatians. Okay, We know from Paul here that the law does not produce righteousness. He's made that very clear. Okay, So the law doesn't produce righteousness. In fact, the law brings death. He said that in chapter 2, verse 19. The law brings death. So the law can't have the function of restraining sin because in Galatians... The way that Paul talks about the law is it's something that we need to be freed from, okay? So, he says to be under the law is to be under a curse. So, I don't know about you, but someone giving you something that's going to curse you is not going to restrain your sin. That is not the function of the law. The law is a curse to the people who are under it, not because the law is bad, but because we are bad, because Israel is was bad. So just in the context of Galatians, the law doesn't restrain sin. The law condemns and the law curses people. So that's Galatians. So restraining sin doesn't really fit with Galatians. Number two, by the way, in Galatians 5, the thing that restrains sin is having the Holy Spirit. Number two, Paul's other letters. So one commentator said the best commentary on Galatians is Romans. He's absolutely right. Paul is making very similar arguments, yet in Romans he's, he's kind of drawn out a lot more. Paul teaches this exact same thing in, in the, about the law in Romans. And this is, this is just, just let this sink in. In Romans 5.20, Paul says, now the law came to increase the trespass. Okay, so he says, trespass, sins, transgressions, these are all basically the same words for the same things. The law came to increase the trespass, to make sin more sinful, to make sin more obvious, to increase it. Paul says in Romans 7 verse 5, listen to this language, he says, for while we were living in the flesh, okay, so this is without the Spirit, without faith, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So in Romans 7, Paul says to a person without the Spirit, to a person living in the flesh, The law arouses their sinful passions. It it antagonizes them. It makes them increase. And it bears fruit for death. Paul says later in Romans 7, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. You see what he's saying? The law caused my sin to come alive and it killed me. God did that on purpose. We'll see that. Watch. Romans seven thirteen. Paul answers the school, so does that mean the law is bad? He says, did that which is good then bring death to me? No, 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 by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Here, here's where we get the exposing. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And then here's the increase. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Okay. So the law was given to expose sin, to arouse it, to make it come alive so that it can be brought out into the light, shown to be what it is, increased, sinful beyond measure. Okay. Third kind of argument for this. Think about Israel's history. To see how the law functions, you don't need to look any further than this. Did the law restrain their sin? No, Did it help them? No. Did it lead to a nice law-abiding society? No. No. I can't even say some of the things that they did because it would make me blush. The law did not help them. This is why in our passage in Deuteronomy 31, even while Moses is receiving the law on Sinai, they're already busy breaking it down below. This is why, brothers and sisters, when you read the Old Testament... And this never made sense to me before I started to understand this idea. When you read the Old Testament, God gives them the law, and then he tells Moses, they're not going to keep it, they're rebellious, they're going to whore after other gods, and they're gonna, I'm going to judge them. And it's kind of like, well, then why are you giving them the law? Because it was meant to expose and increase sin. It was not meant to restrain their sin. The law doesn't do that. God gives Israel the law, even though he knows they're going to break it. Why? Because he wants to expose and provoke and arouse their sin to prepare the way for their salvation, to prepare the way for our salvation. The law was given by God to expose and, in, expose and increase sin. So in the field of crime scene investigation, there's this really fascinating substance called luminol, Okay? Investigators use it at the scene of a suspected murder. So sometimes when someone murders someone, I just know this from watching TV, okay? <laughs> Some, sounded really suspicious there for a second. Sometime when someone murders someone, they'll obviously try to like clean it up and get rid of any trace of guilt that may be there. And you can kind of do that. But crime scene investigators have all these cool tricks now, and they have this substance called luminol. And what they do is they spray it uh, like, they spray it like a mist all over a crime scene, and there's all this science behind it, but basically, it comes in, if it comes into contact with molecules from blood, it, there's a chemical reaction, and then when they turn off the lights and turn on a black light, it will show them exactly if where there's blood or traces of blood. Okay? So, the luminol, this substance, it didn't create any blood, It didn't make there be blood, but it brought all the blood that was there to light. It exposed it, though it wasn't visible to the naked eye. And that's what Paul is saying the law functioned as here. The law, he was very careful about this in Romans 7, doesn't create sin in us. The law is not doing anything to us. The law is good and holy and righteous, but just because of what it is, the sin, so to speak, has a chemical reaction in it, and it exposes it for what it is. So like what Paul was saying in Romans 7 is, it's kind of easy to hide from your sin if you don't have the law, you don't read the law, you don't know the law. We can really easily convince ourselves we're pretty good. You saw that in the survey. But once the law comes in, there's no hiding. It exposes our sin. It exposes our sin, and the only true response to someone who's honestly reading the law and understanding it, is woe is me, I am undone. So Martin Luther rightfully calls the law God's hammer of death, the thunder of hell, and God's sledgehammer to smash our self-righteousness. It drives us to the end of ourselves and gives us, basically leaves us knowing there is no hope unless God is merciful to me. That's what the law should do. And Paul is saying here in Galatians, that was the purpose of the law. And you could see by implication then, these people who are saying, hey guys, you should obey the law for salvation. Paul's like, there's nothing worse you could do. The law brings condemnation and death every time. But this function of the law, exposing, increasing sin, was temporary. Look, look again at verse 19. The law had a built-in expiration date. It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring, that's Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. So now we're starting to see some of the relationship between the promise and the law, the history of redemption. God gave the law to Israel to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, and once he came, it would be removed, in a sense. Now, how is it going to do this? The law would expose their sins, and later he'll generalize this to all of humanity, expose their sins, increase their sins, so that they would cry out to God for a Savior. They would be pointed to God's mercy, and then when Christ came, they would receive him by faith. He would redeem us from the curse of the law. The law was given by God on Mount Sinai, and it's terminated on Mount Calvary. Okay, Paul will get a little more specific about this relationship later, but he's not done in this paragraph. Look, look. He, he starts to talk about how the law was given. This is a little strange for us. He says, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, this is a strange little phrase. Let me show you what he's doing here. He's trying to Again, what he's doing in this whole section is trying to throw a contrast between the promise, or we could say the gospel, faith, and works, the law. He's trying to show how different they are. So this, this, what he's doing here is adding some more contrast, some more discontinuity between the law and the promise. The gospel, the promise, came directly to Abraham from God. He had argued that earlier. God appeared to Abraham and promised him. So direct, unmediated. And by extension, Jesus Christ comes directly to us. We don't need a mediator between us and Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is God in the flesh. You can see how this works. The gospel comes directly to us. The word became flesh. But the law was not this way. This is what Paul's trying to show here. The law, it's like a game of telephone. The law was given by God to angels who delivered it to an intermediary who delivered it to the people of Israel. You can see, it's like four steps removed, whereas the gospel is direct. And so by implication, what he's saying is, the promise is better. The promise is better. Look, at it. now in Acts 7, this, this thing about the angels, if, you, if you're familiar with Exodus, you're like, there were, the Bible doesn't say that angels gave the law to Moses. Well, it does actually. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen says the same thing. The law, you who received, speaking to the Pharisees, you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So why did the law have to be given this way? Think about it. Why did the law have to have all these like steps of, re- of removal from the actual people? Well, remember back in Exodus, if, if you can, the people come to Mount Sinai, God speaks to them directly one time. And what is their reaction? They are terrified. They say, Moses, don't ever let him do that again. It's terrifying. And that's the right reaction because they don't have a Savior yet. The law was entirely conditioned upon the people's obedience. The law was entirely conditioned upon the people's obedience. The law contained no solution to the problem of sin. It just made it worse. We've seen that. So the good things that were offered in the law, and there were them, were entirely conditioned upon Israel's obedience. It was an agreement between two parties, but it was not an unconditional agreement. The gospel, the promise, is an unconditional agreement, a promise from God to Abraham. There are no conditions. It's a promise. And so, what Paul's saying here, there's no intermediary. Like the law needed an intermediary, Moses. It was not given by angels. Why? Because it's not conditional. There's only one party that does the working in the gospel, and that's God. In Christ, God accomplished all of the conditions and requirements. We did nothing. We do nothing but believe and receive the gospel by faith. Paul's argument here with this strange little phrase about there is no, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one, is essentially This, there is only one way of salvation because there's only ever been one promise and God is one. He's never changing. There's not two different ways for Gentiles and Jews and all this stuff. He makes that clear in Romans with the same language. God is one. There is one way of salvation. It's always, only, and ever will be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. The law Did not change the promise that God had made, but rather the law served the promise. This is kind of what he's getting at. The law serves the promise. So why was the law given by God? To expose and increase the sins of the people to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. To show us how sinful we really are and to show us that we need a savior. So now Paul turns to another question, because all of this talk really raises another question. And the the question he's going to ask is, is the law contrary, then, to the promises of God? In other words, you could see, again, the Galatians sitting there in the pew. Okay, Paul, it sounds like you don't like the law. It sounds like you're saying the law is bad, and it sounds like you're actually saying that the law and the promise are in opposition to one another. Okay, you could see how they might think that. And given what Paul's saying in Galatians, you almost expect him to say, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's why you should just believe in Jesus and ignore the law. It kind of follows from what he's been arguing, but he gives the complete opposite answer. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He says, certainly not. Certainly not. Certainly not. But, but, and this, this, this word in Greek, certainly not, is the strongest possible negative thing you could say. It almost, it conveys horror and shock that you would even entertain the question. You could translate it, God forbid, or absolutely not, unthinkable, or if you've been watching The Princess Bride, inconceivable, <laughs> okay? That's what it's trying to get across. Like, it's essentially Paul saying nothing could be further from the truth. So the law is not contrary to the promises of God. Look what he says in verse 21, how he finishes. For, why is the law not contrary to the promises of God? Well, because if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So so why is the law not contrary to the promises of God? Because the law was never presented as a second way of salvation. The law was never given as a means by which you could earn your righteousness before God. If it was, then it would be in opposition to the promises of God, to the gospel. But he says they're functioning in two different ways. The law was never meant to give life. And what he's telling these people is these false teachers who have been telling you the law is going to give you life, they're lying to you. That is not why God gave the law. The law doesn't give life. The law doesn't give righteousness. It does the exact opposite. The law Because of its righteousness, brings out and exposes all of our unrighteousness, kills us, and condemns us. And then, once we're dead in our trespasses and sins, the gospel comes, the Holy Spirit comes, and makes us alive in Jesus Christ. And we believe. The gospel gives life. It is the gospel that gives the righteousness of God, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God, Jesus Christ, is revealed, Paul says in Romans, from faith and for faith. So the law is not bad. It's a great tool, but it was never a tool to gain life or to gain righteousness. Trying to earn God's favor by obeying the law Or just by obedience is like trying to use a hammer to hammer in a screw. They're both good things, but that's just not what they're intended for. Trying to merit eternal life through obedience to the law is like using a microscope to get a better view of Saturn. It's going to have the opposite effect. Not because microscopes are bad, but because that's not the tool for the job. The letter kills, but the Spirit makes alive. So the law is not opposed to the promise, to the gospel. Rather, the law serves the promise by pointing us to the gospel. The law exposes our need for a Savior by exposing the utter depravity of our hearts and our utter inability to obey God in the flesh, in our own power. In verse 22, Paul explains how this works. But as I read this, note the language, again, because all of, in, in, in this discussion, if you're really tracking Paul kind of in a very detailed way, you could be thinking, okay, he's talking about the Mosaic law, which he is, the law given on Sinai. It could be assumed then that this, all this stuff really only applies to the Jews. Um, I mean, the law was given to Israel, right, not to the Gentiles. But Paul here in verse 22, he shifts his language and generalizes and universalizes all of it. Look at verse 22. Instead of saying the law, he says the scripture, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, which he means everything and everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And what he's saying there is, hey guys, the scripture imprisoned both Jew and Gentile all under sin, So you Jews who are all about following the law and you Gentiles who are pagans and have been doing all sorts of unspeakable things, you are all equally guilty before God. You are all imprisoned under sin, under the law. And because of that, the solution to both of your problems, Jew and Gentile, is that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The solution for the Jew and the Gentile is faith in Christ, not obedience to the law, The scripture imprisoned them. Not just Israel. Everyone. The scripture imprisons us. Why? So that we might receive the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ. So the law, the scripture, imprisoned everything under under sin so that the gospel could be given. The law is a prison. The law is a prison. Which again sounds striking. But it is. It was a mechanism that God used to confine, to group everyone together, and to level the playing field so that all would be guilty before him, so that it would be shown that all had fallen short of the glory of God, so that he could bring Christ. Romans eleven thirty two. Paul says the same thing. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So the law imprisoned everyone it condemned everyone it exposed our sin it aroused and increased our sin but here and here's what paul is saying even all of that was god's grace towards us even god's giving of the law which he knew would increase and expose our sin was god's gracious action towards us he was preparing us for the gospel Now, you can think about this kind of redemptive historically, but you can also think about this in your own life. Before you came to faith in Christ, you didn't know of your sin, but there was a moment where the weight of your sin became real to you, and because of that, you cried out to God in faith. That was God's grace to you, even though it may be painful. And even in our Christian life, as we experience that again and again, when God exposes our sin and we feel the weight of it, and we go to him in confession, that is God's grace to us. God knew that giving us the law would expose and increase our sin, but he also knew that he would provide the solution himself, Christ Jesus. He would send Jesus who came into the world to save all who were obedient to the law. No. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, those who have violated God's law time and time again. So even the condemning power of the law is an act of God's grace towards us. And this is what he spells out in the next three verses. Look at the next three verses. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Okay, he's kind of restating the same thing. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So, the law is not our guardian, no justification by faith. But now that faith has come, that's Jesus. We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And we'll, we'll deal with the sons of God. I'm going to kind of use verse 26 to start our next section. Um, anyway, but you can see. Now, now, here's what's interesting about this. The Jews of Paul's day... They liked they loved the law. They talked about the law as a source of life. They liked to use the image of the law is like the the walls of a fortress, of a big city fortress. The wall protect the law protects us like the walls of a city it keeps all the unclean people out, keeps the gentiles out, keeps us pure. That is what the law does. Paul takes that image and flips it on its head and says, actually those walls that you think of, those are the walls of a prison and you are imprisoned. The law, the walls that you thought were keeping you safe were actually condemning you this whole time. The law was a taskmaster, a guardian, a prison guard, a prison warden that drives us to Jesus Christ by exposing and increasing our sin. The law, brothers and sisters, shows us the futile nature of attempting to earn eternal life by our own effort. God's intention in giving the law was to make us feel and to show us that we were trapped in a prison of condemnation, unable to escape. We needed a savior. We needed someone to rescue us, to redeem us. We needed, Paul will say in Galatians 4, someone to be born under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law. The law was given by God that we might see our need for Jesus Christ. It exposed our sin, increased it. The law required us to be put to death for our rebellion. We had no hope. And this is exactly where God wanted us. This is where we needed to be for Christ to come and for us to place our faith in him. And this is the good news, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ has come. Amen? So if you're hearing the words or you're doing your Old Testament Bible reading and you're in a passage like Deuteronomy 31 and you're hearing all this harsh stuff and you're thinking, good grief, this is bad news. The answer is, yeah, it is bad news. Thank God for Jesus Christ. He has come. He lived a perfect life. He was born under the law. He obeyed the law of God perfectly and he was crucified. He bore our sins in his body on the tree and redeemed us from the curse of the law. He was buried and raised to life three days later, and now he rules and reigns at God's right hand, ever living to make intercession for us when we do sin as our great high priest. And through faith in Jesus, God changes our status, our rightful status of guilty, vile sinners before him to adopted sons. Through faith in Jesus, We go from sinners to sons of the king. Not because we've become obedient, not because we've started obeying, now you've earned your sonship. No, because of our faith in Christ and he set us free from the condemnation of the law. No amount of works, no amount of obedience could have done this. Simply faith in Jesus Christ. We are, Paul says, verse 24, Justified, declared righteous by faith. That's the central idea here in Galatians. We are declared righteous, blameless in God's sight. Because of our righteousness? Absolutely not. Because of the righteousness of Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the truth that fuels our sanctification understanding this, the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ, is what motivates and drives us to obey God's good commands that we find in Scripture. Our knowledge of God's love and His acceptance of us in Jesus Christ, His adoption of us as sons, that is what We live out of our identity, our unshakable, unchanging identity of sons of the king. That is how we live. And I'm not using the word daughters on purpose because you'll see in the next passage, spoiler alert, the reason he only says sons is because back in those days, only the sons received the inheritance. So in that sense, we are all sons. We all receive the inheritance of Christ, amen? That is what fuels our obedience. Because some will hear this type of thing and there's an error. Some will say, oh, well then that means we don't have to obey, right? God was gracious. to No, not at all. That is a perversion of what Paul is saying here. The great irony of the book of Galatians and of the Christian life comes at the end of Galatians. Paul teaches us that it is those whose faith is in Christ who have stopped trying to obey the law and earn God's favor Instead, they've been freed from the law by Jesus and are filled by the Holy Spirit. They've turned away from law obedience as as for their status before God. Those people, we would call them Christians, what do they produce? The fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. They produce obedience to the law. Those who instead are striving In their flesh, to obey God, striving to obey his commands, trying to impress him, trying to earn their righteousness, what does it produce in them? Works of the flesh, death, jealousy, strife, anger, dissension, idolatry. Why? Because you can't do it, brothers and sisters. You can't do it. So God gave the law to expose and increase our sin. It was never a way of salvation. Our righteousness before him is received only by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. So take heart in the gospel of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. Rest, rest in the grace of God. Rest in the righteousness of Christ that is yours by faith. Rest in your identity as a son God has declared that you are his own child. He loves you. This is crazy. He loves you as he loves Jesus Christ, his own son. Nothing you ever do will increase his love for you or decrease it. Believe it. Receive that truth and live out of it. Now, some of us know this, but we struggle with this. All of us struggle with this to some degree or another. We know that our salvation is by grace. We say that with our mouth, but then we live and think as if we have to maintain our status before God by our own efforts, by our own strivings, by our own obedience. We have to prove to God that that we are worth saving. God has put us on the right path, but now it's it's up to us. We've got to do it. We've got to get on the straight and narrow. We've got to we've got to act like a Christian and live like a Christian. It's the, I call that the hamster wheel of trying to impress God. It doesn't go anywhere, and it only produces death. When you think of God's disposition towards you, if you picture him as just disappointed and and which leads you to constantly strive to undisappoint him. I'll, I'll read my Bible more. I'll, I really need to do that. I need to stop this one sin that I've been doing. I, I need to do this. I need to do that. I don't, you know, I don't really know if I'm saved because I did that sin, and, but I'm better than that person over there. How could they live like that and this and this? You've forgotten the gospel, brother or sister. You've forgotten the gospel. This is This is law thinking. This is not gospel thinking. Yet it's so natural to us we fall into it so easily. But it's anti-gospel thinking. Martin Luther once said the sin underneath all of our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. It's the lie of the serpent. So if you're if you're tempted if you fall into this pattern of thinking sometimes, it's the lie of the serpent. It it's ends in self-righteousness. It's a self, self-focused thinking that will produce nothing in your Christian life but more sin. Now, if this is you, the irony is here that you could hear me, feel convict, convicted, and then double down on your own efforts to solve it. Okay, that's it. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'll try really hard this time. To not be self, to give the self-effort. But that's not the solution. That's not the solution. You're still going to flesh, to effort, to fix the problem. And if you were standing in front of me, I would gently grab your face and say, look to Christ, brother and sister. Look to Christ. You can trust the grace of God. He loves you. He loves you in Jesus Christ. He loves you. Go to him. Go to him. The only way to get off this this path, this hamster wheel of striving, is to believe and receive and rest in the grace of God. He loves you. He loves you infinitely, unchangeably. He will never love you more or less. So go to him in prayer. Repent of your self-righteousness, of your effort. Ask for the power of the Spirit to produce the fruits of the Spirit in you, to put to death the deeds of the body. Remember what happened at your baptism, that you died to the power of the law. Remember when we take the Lord's Supper, Christ's body broken for you. Remember your guilt. It was real. But then remember the grace of God. And then let your heart be filled with gratitude. And out of that, out of that, after you've believed and received the gospel and are reminded of it, out of that, live in obedience to his good and wise commands. But there are some of you here this morning too whose, whose faith is not in Jesus Christ. And what this means, or maybe you think it is, but you're like the people in the survey. I'm, I'm good. Why, why would God save me? I mean, I'm a pretty good person. I try really hard. You know, I try to be nice. I try to be good. I'm not perfect, but hey, who is? Who is? Friend, when you come before God's judgment, you think, I've heard people say this, I'll just work it out with him then. (laughs) Hopefully, I mean, people think this. Hopefully, you know, my good deeds will outweigh the bad. That type of thinking comes straight from the pit of hell itself. You need to hear God's holy law, and you've heard it this morning. God has revealed to you in the scriptures the standard by which you will be judged, and they are not your standards. They are his And you're not even close. None of us are. None of us were. God is holy, perfectly righteous, infinitely good, infinitely just. He doesn't excuse sin and your sin, friend, is great. You heard the Ten Commandments as we confessed our sin. We all have broken each one of those every day. No amount of doing and earning will outweigh that. Unless you turn from your self-righteousness, and place your faith in Christ, you will die in your sins, and that is not something I or anyone else here wants for you. Your only hope is to flee to Jesus Christ and trust him as your Savior and to receive his righteousness, and the good news is the way is open. The way is open. Christ himself has declared in his holy word that he will turn away none who come to him in faith, and you might say, but well, I have done horrible things. That qualifies you for salvation. The, the ground, the law levels all of us. So come, come to Christ, receive him by faith and be saved. Join us, all of us who were once sinners, but now are sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And for all of us, may the law continually humble us May it continually drive us every single day to the hope that we have in the gospel, to the knowledge that we have of the righteousness of Christ that we have received by grace through faith. Amen. Let's pray.